week. I was trying to move on, and y'all just kept laboring on these verses and would not allow me to move on, or some version of that. I don't, that's so long ago, I don't remember. But we're going to briefly try to bring in just a couple concepts from chapter 6 that we didn't make it to, that I did not let us make it to, and then our plan is to tackle what we can in chapter 7 tonight. And so... For chapter 6, some closing thoughts. The verses we didn't get to, kind of the second half of chapter 6, I think tried to be succinct and round up. What are a couple thoughts um, that the preacher is giving us in chapter 6? One, this question, what advantage has the wise over the fool? And in that question, uh, Solomon implying there isn't one in the context of what he is saying. And then, better is the sight of the eyes than the the wondering of the appetite. So, briefly, does anyone want to offer an answer to that first question? What advantage has the wise over the fool? Does he not? People are saying, absolutely. What's the point? Sure, Chris. Keith is going to race me over there. He's faster than me. I'm not even going to try. The wise has learned so he can avoid um, a lot of the pain that he's already gone through or that uh, others have experienced that he's learned from. So I don't don't take it as rhetorical. Okay, good. Yeah, they're definitely is benefit to being wise compared to being a fool. And in some ways, in chapter 7, Solomon's going to give several answers into how being wise has an advantage over being foolish. Now, in the context of chapter 6, in the vanity of life, of living for this life, recognizing that we come to death, the wise man's going to die too, but there definitely still is an advantage I think in the context of what he's written here and as he begins with in chapter 7, he's saying the wise man can can discern between those things that are lasting and those things that are fleeting. Uh, the fool tends to live for the moment. The, the wise man understands the difference between what is important. Very good. The wise man has a good perspective on what's fleeting and what is lasting And if there was a wise man who, though he was wise, still only lived for the things under the sun, he he wouldn't really be any different from the fool. He would come to the same end as the fool. Any thoughts on better is the sight of the eyes than the wondering of the appetite? And maybe I'll just offer my thoughts and try to get us into chapter 7 here. To me, this is really, this is the original, you know, the bird in hand versus two in the bush It is better to be happy with what God has put in front of you than to still be longing after things you do not have. That the wondering of the appetite, that appetite that's never satisfied. Yes, God's given me blessings today. I see these, but I I could have more, I think. 
I could go after some more. I could pursue some more. My neighbor has more. My appetite is always on that. And Solomon's saying it's better to be pleased with what you see, what you have, than the endless wondering of this unsatisfied appetite. Right, Jonathan? When you asked those two questions together, I almost wondered if the answer to the first one was in the second one. So the wise man realizes that God's empowered him to enjoy what's he, what he's put into his hand, whereas the fool is the one who cannot enjoy those things for probably for reaching for something else. And so this appetite for something else is preventing him from seeing what he has and what he can enjoy. The wise man's not like that. So he can enjoy those things. Yeah, and that really ties back to a lot of the a lot of the discussion last week, right? That the man who has all this stuff but is prevented, somehow he is prevented from enjoying it, from having dominion over it, from doing what he should with it, glorifying God for it, possibly prevented by his appetite because he's not satisfied. He needs more. He needs other. He needs something else. So thank you for that. Um, we in chapter 7 are going to, a bit of a contrast to chapter 6, we're going to get Solomon again at in some ways, at his most proverbial. he Some of these verses are very familiar to us. I think in these, these first eight, maybe the first 13 verses here, um, as you're reading them, you're like, oh, I've heard this before, and maybe this is stuck in my head like a proverb. You might have even forgotten some of these verses are found in Ecclesiastes, not in the book of Proverbs, because they would fit right in in many ways. A very classic, like, this thing is better than that thing. This thing is preferred over this thing. This thing gives a good outcome compared to that thing, which gives a bad outcome. That's a pattern you see a lot in Proverbs, those really succinct, helpful phrases that pack a big punch in just a few words. And you can take those with you really easily. You can grab some of these verses, and they have big thoughts in just a few words, um, and Solomon wants to talk about things that are better in these first few verses. I think the first, up to verse 8, you kind of, you continue to see this word, better is this than this. Better is the one who does this than that. So why do you think, with your understanding of the scriptures, why are these things better? Verse 1, um, a good name is better than precious ointment. Why is that better? than precious ointment. Precious ointment sounds pretty nice. Is that better? Precious ointment or anything that you might consider precious, you might have one time, but your name, you have your entire life. So you've got a way. One time, the whole, the whole way... That, that should be, you know, something that kind of answers itself. Yeah. It goes back to maybe what Bruce was saying. There's some things are fleeting. Some things are lasting. A good name will last. And ointment, you use it, and it's gone, right? Any, any thoughts on why the word ointment here? There's a lot of expensive stuff to talk about. Right. Any any thoughts on that potentially that you that you read in this week? A good name is better than a big old gold brick. Could have said that. A good name is better than a dozen oxen. You know, just, there's so many ways to represent wealth and nice things. A good name is better than two houses. I, I mean, you could just go on and on. Um, 
Any thoughts on why ointment just plucked out of that, that big cloud of possibilities? I tend to think it's because ointment is, well, what is the purpose of ointment? It's a perfume or like a lotion, something to make us look or smell or feel better. And a good name is, well, it's the non-physical, the spiritual version of ointment. It's how we portray ourselves to the world. It's our perfume, if you will, to um, uh, how we portray ourselves to other people. And that's more important than the physical uh, benefits of ointment, I guess. Yeah, I love that. I mean, ointment, we use precious ointments or things like that to make things that don't smell good, smell good. We use that, we use something like that to make something appear better than it is, appear nicer than it is. Not that it's trash without it, but you know, it didn't smell good before. That's why we put ointment on it maybe, or, or it needed some type of improvement, so we put ointment on it. And yet a good name does not need to be boosted in any way. It's not covering up anything. It has its own intrinsic value. Yeah, John. We're just thinking some ointments are used to relieve pain. Good name can save you a lot of pain. Absolutely. Great comparison. Yeah, David, I'll bring it to you here. I think also this you know, did not pull, pull verse 1 totally out of the context of, of the verses together. Because you think you know, the first four verses are all really about death. And so I think if you think of the context of death and ointment and, you, and the use of perfumes to cover, you know, the decaying aspect of the body, you know, what, what you know, so, the, so, so that was a, a cultural tradition. And, and so in some sense, okay, you know, that was a nice thing to have. But you know, that will not last. But what's going to last? You know, when you're when you're when you're dead and gone, what's going to you know, you know what's going to last in in the sense of the legacy you leave behind? Great comparison. It's better to be a good person than have a good burial. You know, it's it, there is value in that beyond something that seems really nice to have a nice burial and to have ointment and to have a nice send-off or farewell, but to actually have a reputation is better than that if you had to choose. And you make a good point. So let me just, let me just put them all up here. And I think I neglected to put the other from verse 1, the day of death and the day of birth. So consider that as well. So let's open it up to, to any of these. Why are these things better? Um, the, the first one, we're kind of on, like, we like to think we'd have a good name and a good reputation. I don't think we would really disagree with that. Most people are like, yeah, I think so. I'd rather have people like me and know that I'm a good person. I'd rather have a nice legacy or, or reputation. Some of these are hard, though. Um, the day of death than the day of birth. Well, that's interesting. Going to the house of mourning as opposed to going to the house of feasting. Sorrow is better than laughter. Um, some of those are a little harder, right? Because and, and, cause some of these, they don't say, oh, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of sin or something. We'd be like, well, we shouldn't be there. No, it just says it's the house of feasting or the house of laughter. These other things that are not as good 
laughter. You know, they're not bad, are they? Always. So let's talk more about these others. Why are these better? And there's an overall context. But when you read these, probably you have taken some of these at times and they've given you maybe even comfort at times. How do they give you comfort? How, do they, how are these helpful to you, any of these verses? Why are these things better? And why is it worth Solomon saying, I need to talk to you about these things. And when you have a choice, here's the one you should be choosing. I knew you were going to stop as soon as I over. <laughs> Contemplation brings comfort and wisdom. I like that. And I think we'll come back to that before this study is done. Thank you. Was it Chris? Did you have it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, in verse, I, I think the key might be in verse two. Um, after it says, then go to the house, uh, better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting for that is the end of all men and the living will take it to heart. So it's kind of like, Sometimes happiness is a false happiness and sadness is what's true. Um, I think the, the sadness is, is fitting in some places, in some parts of our lives. Maybe that's part of what he's going for. Oh, I like that for sure. Get you, Bruce. One of the things I think about in reading these verses, I'm reminded of Christ is he and some of his disciples were eating, and the woman brings in this jar of precious ointment. The others were there to eat, and she was interrupting. This ought to have been sold. But Jesus pointed out, this is for my burial. Uh, he understood that. Uh, he had the good name. This precious ointment, uh, although it was for his burial and it was a teaching point for Jesus and for us, uh, that ointment, as someone said before, as the body, the normal body would decay, would simply disappear and be gone. Christ would remain forever. So this going to the house of, of mourning uh, with Solomon, as David said, uh, kind of slaps us back into reality from the feasting. The feasting, we're living for the moment. We're alive, we got good food, we got good friends. We're sitting around enjoying things and we're not thinking maybe of how this food harms us or other things. But when we go to a grave or we go to uh, a funeral home, we meditate our own mortality and it makes us if we listen wise along with the rebuke of the wise uh, it's better to be rebuked by a wise man than to take advice from a fool absolutely you you touched on a lot there in some way the meditation coming back to the contemplation we, we, it makes us think about things in a way that birth and laughter happiness, they, they don't make us think in the same ways as going to the house of mourning or having sorrow. And that's, you know, if those things remind us of what could be an unpleasant truth for us. 
but it's really critical that this is going to happen. That, like, that death is somewhere for all of us. And we get to be reminded by that. You know, pain and sorrow are a better teacher than pleasure. And that's not by accident. That is by design. And the preacher here, Solomon, he's not the first to talk about how this could be helpful. Right? Consider um, Moses in Psalm 90. He says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So Moses saying, teach us to grasp this, to number, to really get an understanding of how many days. Now, I don't think he's saying, teach us how to plot, like how many do we have left? Like 713, that's not number in that sense, but help us remember that these are numbered things, that they are not infinite, and that that number is going down every day. That all of us have a number and we don't know what it is, but every time we go to a funeral or every time we even have sorrow on some significant scale, we're pulled back to that helpful concept, right? That our days are numbered. Um, David in Psalm 39, Lord, make me to know my end. And what is the measure of my days that I may know how frail I am? So here you see incredibly giant figures of faith, like Moses and David, and these men saying, it's helpful for me to have to deal with this. And it's helpful for me to remember, and I need you to intervene at times and help me with learning this, because I'll forget how frail I am. Because sometimes the laughter and the births and the house of feasting, while not wrong, they don't take me there. They take us to other things and things that are appropriate. We've talked a lot in Ecclesiastes already. When God gives us blessings, it's right to enjoy the blessings and to give him glory for what he's given to us. And yet I think Solomon offering some measure here that there's still something better and it's to wrestle with how long are we here and to learn that. Um, the Hebrew writer, he even tells us that Jesus learned through his suffering. And we, we wrestle even with that verse, like what exactly does that mean? As much as we understand Jesus being God and man at the same time, and like, but he's learning something, like how can that? And we have to, we have to wrestle with that and figure out what is that verse telling us? But it does not say he learned from his feasting or he learned from having wonderful times with the disciples, which I'm sure he did have enjoyment with them at times. And he had some, some blessings and he had pleasure at times. But he learned through his suffering. And so the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. The heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. Verse 4. And so I think you're right, and I appreciate David saying these are all connected in some ways, you know, they, they around this thought of the end, a funeral, death, departure, and that, you know, there's, there's two dates on your tombstone, typically, right? It's when you are born, and it's when you die. You do a lot of other really cool stuff in your life, but typically, you know, when you are married doesn't make it on to the tombstone or when you graduated from college or when you bought your first house 
or other, like those are all important to you and those are great. But like when we sum it up here on earth, like you were born and you died and Solomon doing the same thing. If I have to choose which, which is more important, which, which can teach me more, it's that second one. It's facing that the end of this life is more beneficial for us to be contemplating than the beginning. Other thoughts about any of these or anything else, maybe verses one through eight, things that strike you or things that you find especially helpful. A great verse, uh, it's, um, it's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This is also vanity. You imagine someone trying to cook dinner with a pot and you throw a bunch of you know, thorns that you've pulled and you throw them under there and you light that and they will light probably pretty quick because they're thin and they're dry and they will crackle right away and they'll be out in seconds probably rather than something substantial will take a while. It's not always crackling. It's not quick. It doesn't provide that sound right away and just how fleeting that laughter is. You know, this verse, it, it, you know, it can remind you of another concept, the wounds of a friend are faithful, which kind of similar to the re rebuke of the wise. But this is said notably different than that. This does not say the rebuke of your wise friends. This does not say the rebuke of your well-meaning wise people. This does not say the rebuke of your finely worded wise people. There will be times when we will encounter wisdom from people we don't like, and they will say it in a way that we don't like. They won't be tactful about it. They will, maybe it's unsolicited. That's just one of the, I found in the professional world, unsolicited advice, incredibly unpopular that you would deign to assume someone might want to hear your thoughts on something. It's very frowned upon and it's like, let people ask you before you just give them advice. And this doesn't give any of those caveats, those things that we'd like to insulate, like when my friend comes to me and they say it very gently and they ask me if I'm ready to hear this and they, and they say this is coming from a place, it just says the rebuke of the wise, someone that knows the truth and they just say it to you. That's better than other things. And that's a little more blunt than maybe we would like because sometimes those are kind of get out of jail cards for us. We hear something that is wise, but it comes from an enemy maybe, or it's really untactful and it's pretty rude. And I didn't even ask for your opinion anyways. And so therefore I get to just dismiss this. But Solomon says just the wise rebuke is better. And we, we may find that we've overlooked a lot of those because it didn't come in the way we would like. You know, we, we'd always sign up for, you know, a kind, gentle response from someone, but that may not be where the wise rebuke always comes from. Let me go forward a little bit. Oh, the end of a thing, kind of in some ways, I think a bookend, kind of bringing back to the day of death, the day of, the, of birth, um, the end of the thing is better than the beginning. A lot of you saying amen because they're like, Alan, I've heard you preach before. Absolutely, the end of the thing was better than the beginning. 
but I think that is still just that same concept that when things close and have finality, you reflect, you contemplate, you meditate because the wise person would say, that, well, that's the death, the end of the thing that's really leading to something else. This, this realm that we've been hinting at all through this class, this beyond the sun realm, above the sun, how it, whatever the opposite of beneath the sun would be, death is what gets to take you there. You know, birth puts you under the sun. And we've talked about how hard that is under the sun. So in many ways, a wise person would say, I'm ready to get out from under this thing. I'm ready to go on to where a lot of these things do not happen. Verse 7, uh, kind of right in the middle, you know, there's, there's another better statement in verse 8, but verse 7 gives us two ways that a wise man can become a fool. What two ways do you find there in verse 7? And why, and why would that? They are not obviously connected, in my opinion, as, as you might think. So what do you see in verse 7 that will trip up the wise man? Oppression can be a distraction discouragement that uh, you know, becomes perhaps a burden that uh, causes you to lose the sense of your rationale. You react instead of thinking through something. Okay. Oppression, one of those things. What else do you see kind of in the second part of, of verse 7? There's like 30 people in here saying the word in their mind right now, but you just, just like shout it out like a bribe. Yeah. So a bribe also, and the bribe corrupts the heart. So we've got oppression and a bribe can really throw a wise person off. So we, we talked about oppression a little bit. Anyone want to talk about a bribe? How does this make someone who's wise become unwise or be corrupted? It's not... As clear as you might think, it doesn't say, you know, a wise man stops studying and he forgets everything. You know, that would be connected, right? So when I read this together, I almost think about what we see, I'll just call it today, in politics. You might have somebody whose enemies are just beating them up all the time, whether it's true or not, just constantly bombarding them. And they're so tired and beat up that they can't do what they want to do or what they promise to do. And then on the other hand, you've got folks that can't do what they promised you they were going to do because they're taking money under the table or lobbies or whatever. And I don't, I don't mean it to head into politics, but I mean, if he's, if he's talking about what he sees around him in his kingdom and such, I, I think it applies because we can see that a lot today. I mean, to me, that's like the biggest thing that stands out. But it can happen. It can happen in the church. If someone's getting beat up by people that have an, a, a differing opinion about something, maybe maybe uh, it's the elders, you know, getting getting beat up by folks and and uh, they're maybe hesitant to do something that they might think is the right way to go because they have too many people in opposition. Or, on the other hand. Um, well, I know this is the right way to go, but my friends, you know, I might, I might lose my friends. And so I want to keep my friends, uh, so I don't do what I think is right. Yeah. That's kind of, that's just two things that popped into my head. No, oh, thank you for that. Chris. 
not to disagree with what's been said, but um, it seems like oppression would be uh, manipulation, kind of the, the stick, <laughs> if you will, and then uh, a bribe would be manipulation, kind of like a carrot. Um, the, the stick would be uh, maybe wisdom is more difficult when you're preserved, like you're, you're fighting for self-preservation. Um, and then the bribe would be you're fighting against your own self-indulgence. Um, they, they both war against just reasoning, just, well, what should we do in this situation um, and being objective about it? I well, so that's, I like that take. Um, and just kind of summing up that things that can interfere, maybe things being very hard, things being unjustly easy, the bribe and the oppression that they can alter our thinking, they can alter our behavior. And maybe this serves as a good point to, hey, why is it so needed to often be contemplating or be meditating about life? Well, maybe because there are things, oppression or potential bribes or whatnot that will creep in and try to erode some of your wisdom. Yeah, Mitch. It could also be that the wise man's in a position of power and has the ability to oppress others and that also corrupts because we see that happen as well. Um, just that idea of once you start down that path, it's very easy to, to all of a sudden uh, train your mind into thinking that that's something you deserve to, to put down these people and you just continue in it more and more. Yeah, for sure. If he is saying when the wise man oppresses people or takes bribes from people, that man definitely is shifting his focus now. He's shifting on himself off of helping others, off of what he might learn at the house of mourning and his place in God's plan. Now he's just looking at how can I get more? He's kind of reverting back into this individual from last chapter. Oh, I agree. Let me, all right, Bruce, I'm going to bring you back in here. Could it also be that he's pointing out man's fallibility? That here is a wise man uh, whose heart and mind, which belongs to God along with his soul, uh, can fall. Uh, it can be tempted by th uh, materialism. It can be tempted by uh, lack of faith during times of trial. Just, just a thought. I think it's a great thought. I think he's heading that way in, in some fashions kind of in this chapter. Um, I think... Maybe in my next slide, we'll really try to dive into some of that. But in 9 through 11, quickly, let's, let's, we've got time to do that. What do you find here? So we've, we've talked a little bit about what the wise person, the one who's interested in better things, what are they interested in? What are they participating in in some of these first verses? But in 9 through 11, what things are found in the heart of a fool when you read those? And they're not exactly listed but what things or what behaviors, mindsets, would you say are found in the heart of the fool from 9 through 11? Anger in the days of the past. Yeah, so he said anger, the days of the past. I had those, those two. I kind of had one more as well, if anyone is able to read my mind, kind of in verse 11. And this one I'm just drawing from the antithesis of what's presented in verse 11. You know, if wisdom is doing this, if wisdom is good with, its, with an inheritance, the foolish man is not going to be. He's not going to be prudent with things. It um, doesn't say the foolish man won't have money, 
says he's, he won't be good if, if you take the opposite. Wisdom is good with the inheritance, so the fool would not necessarily be good with the inheritance. Let's, let's back up, though. That first one, anger. Why is this, why is this a foolish thing? Does this scripture, do others that come to mind, why is this when anger, lo- why does anger lodge in the heart of fools? As the preacher tells us, it does. Yeah, John. Uh, anger is not conducive to making good decisions. Anger is not conducive to making good decisions. Absolutely. Any other thoughts? about anger. Yep, you want me to come over there? I'm coming. General Colin Powell, when he was chief of staff, passed a card out to all the officers uh, on his list of things he expected. One of the, at the top of the list was get mad and get over it. A fool doesn't do that. A fool harbors hate, revenge, all sorts of things in his heart. But the wise man learns to deal uh, and control himself when it comes to anger because it will destroy you. Absolutely. That really speaks to that part of the verse that the fool doesn't just say the fool is angry. He lodges it in his heart. That definitely is opposite of what you just shared to, to get angry and get over it. But the fool lodges it. In his heart, this is not, you know, a passage that says the wise man will never be angry about anything. And we, we, there's whole sermons preached about anger and what is righteous anger and what it's an anger that, you know, does not accomplish the righteousness of God. And how do we avoid that? And then we would wrestle with what do we do when Jesus is angry at those for not showing mercy on the man with the withered hand. And he looks at others in anger because they don't care about this man so much. The scripture tells us, but the fool holds on to it. What about this? The former days were were they not better than these? That that's not probably what you're thinking, kind of in a list of things. You'd be like, the fool is angry and he's lazy and he's rude to people, you know, it's like negative, negative, negative. But this, you know, it's not from wisdom that you're like, why were the former days so much better than today? So why is that such a foolish thought? Do you think? Yes. The past is something you can't change, but you can have an effect on the future. So if you dwell on the past, you're dwelling on something that you can, you can do nothing about. A great point. What, what good is brought about from just wringing our hands and saying, oh, so much better last year or 10 years ago. You cannot change that. You are incredibly capable to change tomorrow, though, to some perspective. Solomon also said, there's nothing new under the sun, so it's, it's not that much different. Really. Okay, yeah. So saying that wisdom would tell you you're, you're not being fair in your review of those old days because today is much like those days or those days are much like these days in a lot of aspects that you may be conveniently ignoring when you look with rose-colored glasses. Sure. So this just caused something that popped in my head, and, and I... Kind of go back to um, the quote, ask not what your country can do for you. You know, what, what can you do? Um, he's asking the questioner, he says, you do not inquire wisely concerning this. Well, what? It's the quote right before that. So I'm thinking, rather than 
complain that the days seem like they're worse than they were. Maybe I should be asking, what can I do to change them or affect them rather than just complain about them? Okay, well, I like that. And in some ways, you know, as, I, as, we, as we look ahead a little bit, maybe verse, verse 14, it ties in some of the thoughts we've shared tonight. In the days of prosperity, be joyful. In the days of adversity, consider. You know, don't, don't bemoan and don't wail and collapse, but consider, contemplate, meditate, think about it. Specifically consider this, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So consider a couple things there, definitely that God is still in control, and that in many ways we will not understand why he does the things that he does. That's kind of a concept we've had in chapters up to this point, that we see things happen, we don't understand, and yet he does not owe us an explanation. We are not to understand a lot of these things. And also, yeah, what could we do? What, can, how, what consideration could we give to make today better or to make tomorrow better or to improve things? Absolutely. So uh, a real quick, easy question for someone. I may just pick on you and let you answer this one. What are we supposed to do with verse 16 in this chapter? It's a very, it's a pretty simple question, I think, where Solomon says, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? What? So he lured us into the trap where we felt like we understood where he was coming from for a little while. And then in classic ecclesiastical Solomon, he kind of switches on us a little bit and gives us something that is not easily apparent, where he says, it's really good to be wise. And of course, from a few chapters ago, you need to be mindful when you enter the house of the Lord. So obviously you should be righteous, but do not be too righteous. Do not be too wise. I think, I think this is answering a, a problem that we've seen common to man since the beginning, which is uh, man tends to focus on the one thing to the exclusion of everything else, right? So you see it with the Jews, they, in, you know, with the ju- at the time of the judges, they decided they were just going to do whatever they wanted, and they only did that, right? They went all in on whatever I want to do in my heart, that is what is right, and we saw the outcome there. The Jews during the time of Jesus' day tried to do the other side, which is we are righteous, we are religious, and we are that to the exclusion of all else, right? We are that to the extreme. And uh, what you see in God's law is there's a balance, right? You have to consider... God, right, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. You have to consider God, you have to consider man, and you have to do that in in balance with God's word. Otherwise, you will go too far one way or the other. Okay, thank you. Mitch, explaining some of the the balance needed and and some of the traps of, of trying to pursue a type of righteousness. Any other... Any other thoughts on this one? This is, a, this is an odd verse. I don't mean any disrespect to the scripture here, but it's hard because he says, don't be overly righteous. And that sounds, sounds different. John. I get tripped up maybe with the um, statement, at least the way it's given in English, to be not excessively wise or 
excessively wicked. Um, but just to maybe simplify the underlying thoughts there, um, I wonder if, the, if it's saying there's a kind of wisdom that can be avoided for sure. It's what he speaks of in Proverbs 3, verse 7. There's a being wise that's in my own eyes. I don't think there's a way to really truly be excessively wise in, in any real sense. But it can be, it's possible to be excessively wise in my own eyes, and that's going to lead me astray. And so to tie these things together, verse 15 here in Ecclesiastes says, or sorry, 16 is uh, speaking of being um, overly wise. Verse 17 is talking about being wicked. Verse 18 talks about the fear of the Lord. If you're in Proverbs 3, verse 7, it sums, puts all those things together and it says, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil so you're not being excessively wicked either. So maybe that's some explanation there. No, I, pre- I appreciate that for sure. I'll, I'll give my thoughts real quick because we're, we're coming down on time. Yeah, I, I totally agree. They're, the Pharisees serve as a good example of people that maybe decided like we will just outrighteous this life. Like we will, we will start tithing like the tiniest little pieces of herbs. Like we're going to just go all in on kind of this righteous rule keeping and you know they're not rebuked for tithing mints but that that mentality took them down a, a course that was that was wrong they forgot huge parts of the law you know and and when Jesus would speak to those he would say you actually need to be more righteous in kind of in a shocking statement Jesus would say in Matthew 5 I tell you unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, um, you won't be able to enter the kingdom of heaven. And to the people, they would have heard that and at first been like, impossible. Like these are, these are the most righteous people. Look at their phylacteries. Like they would just, they, that's, that was their image, right? And yet Jesus points to that. This is not what real righteousness is. So I agree. I do not think that's all I'm saying like, got to just cut loose every now and then. Like you can be too righteous and miss out on some of the pleasures of life. That is not what seems to be spoken of here, but that do not think, do not even think that through a regimented righteous and all wise living that you're still going to avoid the house of mourning sometimes, and you're going to avoid sorrow, and you're going to avoid being confused about why things happen under the sun at times because that will be vain for you. That will not, you cannot avoid it. Do not even think righteousness is a path to avoiding that. You should be righteous. You should avoid wickedness, but that you will still experience all these things that we've been talking about. I'm gonna go real quick to kind of a a closing thought here. I think we gotta skip over these verses because I really wanna land on this one here. Verses 23 through 29 Again, very Solomonish, Solomaic. I don't know how to say that. Um, as he talks about this thing that is even more bitter than death, and it's interesting. He says, "In my vain life, I found that kind of a very sad, reflective moment for Solomon, saying that in verse 15 is like, in my vain life, I've seen everything, and then we come to this. I found something more bitter than death, and what is it that he's found?" This woman whose heart is snares, her hands are fetters or chains. And you really get this picture of this woman 
like this harlot woman figure that you find in Proverbs, the one held up as the antithesis. You have Lady Wisdom and how she conducts herself and how attractive she is and how we should be pursuing her. And you have that other woman that he warns his son stay away from her. And he says she appears kind of in this passage, I think. And he's saying that dealing with her is even more bitter than death. And so I think our time is kind of concluding. So think about that uplifting thought this week, and maybe we'll return to it. Why, why would this be even more bitter than death? Because death sounds pretty bitter, but this is even worse, Solomon would tell us. Thank you, everyone, for class tonight. We'll have a couple minutes as the kids come in now.